We're going to go ahead and we're going to jump into the, the word this morning. I've got a, uh, a lot that I, I need to say and I want to talk about. And uh, um, hopefully it stretches us, may irritate us a little bit, but that's okay, right? Good preaching should stretch us. And it should irritate us sometimes, right? It should. So uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and 14 this morning. If you've got a Bible, whether paper or digital, and you want to follow along, we're going to loosely follow the narrative there in 1 Samuel 13 and 14. If you don't have a Bible or if you prefer, the scriptures are going to be right up here on the screen. Do you know why? Because we have an awesome tech team. There you go. Hey, there, uh, there's a story that, uh, an old story that's been told many, many times about a, uh, a village that was overrun by an enemy and conquered by an enemy. And the, as the enemy came in, they built a, a, a prisoner camp just outside of this village and they put a big iron gate uh, in front of the, 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 the prison camp there. And many of the, the young men from the village and the leaders from the village, they were forced to go into this camp. And um, there were also three elderly men who also happened to be wealthy men who begun, who, who began to hear about some of the things and the conditions in the camp. So the first elderly man goes to the camp, and he begins to speak to the captors, and he says, I hear that there's no fresh water in the camp and that my friends are getting sick because there's no fresh water to drink. I want to take my resources, my money, and have a well dug inside of the camp so people can have fresh water to drink. And they agreed, and the well was dung, dug, not dung, that would be nasty, <laughs> dug, and they had fresh water to drink. The second man went and he said, I've heard that there's, there's not enough food to eat, and I'm, I'm a farmer, and I've just brought in the, the, the crops, and I want to bring food to the camp so my friends will have enough food to eat, and the captors agreed, so they brought food, and people were able to, to have enough food to eat for the first time in days, maybe even in weeks. Then the last man, although he was appreciative of what his, his two friends had done to help alleviate some of the suffering of, of the, the people in the camp, he was very upset about the injustice of them being in the camp in the first place. So one evening, while the captors were sleeping, he snuck into the camp, he found the keys to the gate, he unlocked it, and he let everybody go free. Now, the story illustrates the difference between mercy and justice. We need mercy. The first two men were showing mercy. They, they were bringing some help in a bad situation. But the third man changed the situation. We need mercy, but we also need justice. In a world where many are held captive by the enemy, we have ample opportunities to show mercy, and we should. 
But as Christians, we also need to press for justice in situations so they'll be changed. We're finishing up our series called Didn't See That Coming, Suddenly Surprised by God. And this morning, we're going to talk about surprised by God's justice. We're going to answer three questions. And the first question is, why do we need justice? The reason we need justice is because our enemy is an oppressor. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, starting in verse 19, it says, There were no blacksmiths in the land of Israel in those days. The Philistines wouldn't allow them for fear that they would make swords and spears for the Hebrews. So whenever the Israelites needed to sharpen their plowshares, their picks, their axes, or sickles, they had to take them to a Philistine blacksmith. So if you're not aware who the Philistines are, they were the arch enemy of the Israelites at this time. And during this moment, the Philistines were oppressing the Israelites, and they were not allowing them to have blacksmiths because they were afraid they would make weapons out of it. And what can we see from that? Your enemy does not want you to have a weapon. He wants you to be without weapons, and the weapons that you have, he wants to be dull. He wants you to be without the weapon of faith. He wants you to be without the weapon of hope. He wants you to be without the weapon of the word of God. And he wants you to be without the weapon of prayer. And even in those places, I can almost guarantee there's not anybody in this room that doesn't have one of these somewhere. It may not be here with you, It may be at your house, and even if you don't have a paper one at your house, we are of no excuse, are we? Why? Because you can get it on your smartphone. That's right. He wants us to be dull about the Word of God. Do you know the Word says my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge? He wants us to be dull Because we won't even know what to pray. We won't have the weapon of prayer because we won't know what to pray. Sometimes we throw up prayers. Like, God, if you get me out of this, I'll stop cussing. How about a prayer from the Word? Lord, you supply all of my needs according to your riches and glory through Christ Jesus. He also wants us to be dull about the plight of people around us. I want you to look to your left. Yeah, everybody over here, look at the wall. (laughs) Now look to your right. Somewhere in this room, somebody has come in, and they may have had a smile on their face, but something's going on in their life. He wants us to be dull. He wants us to come to church, come in, sing a few songs, hear a little message, shake hands, and go home. (coughs) Because he doesn't want us to get engaged in people's lives. He wants to keep people separated. He wants to keep them feeling like I'm the only one going through this. Nobody cares. He wants us to be dull. He wants us to be dull 
to oppression and poverty. We came in this morning. Most of us ate breakfast. If you didn't eat breakfast, it's probably because you didn't want to eat breakfast. We're going to leave here in just a little bit, and most of us are either going to go to a restaurant or we're going to go home, and what are we going to do? We're going to eat, right? And most of us, even this evening, we're going to eat again. But there is someone in this town. There are children in this town. There are people in this town that are not eating because they don't want to eat. It's because they don't have food. And though we show up and we, we're in, in a nice building and we're in clean clothes, there's somebody outside the four walls of this building that's living in poverty and they're living in oppression. Yeah. The second reason that we need justice is because our enemy is a thief. John 10.10, 10, the thief's purpose is to steal, to kill, and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. What's the enemy's purpose? Steal, kill, and destroy. So why is it that the world thinks that God's doing it to them? His his place, his purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. And he wants to do it to us individually, but he also wants to do it as a church. He wants to steal your identity. How many people don't know who they are, who they're supposed to be? We live in a society where identity is so confused. I don't know who I am. He wants to steal, he wants to kill your dreams. He wants to destroy your peace. That's individually. But as a church, he wants to steal our purpose. He wants to kill the unity and destroy the influence. What's our purpose? Pastor Roger preached a great message last week. If you weren't here, nctyler.org, press listen. He preached on purpose. Knowing your why. You see, when the church doesn't know our why, we're going to be divided. He wants to kill the unity. And he's able to do that when we don't know the why. When we don't know our purpose. When we're not being who we're supposed to be. And if he can kill our unity, he's going to destroy our influence. He's going to destroy the influence of the body of Christ in society. And I think we can see it. So we've got to know our purpose. We've got to know our why. We've got to be together so we can influence. And if it feels like I'm rushing, I am. I got a lot to say, like I said. Here's the second question we're going to answer. Where do we need justice? Any place where the enemy is oppressing, stealing, or lying to us, we need justice. But there are three issues that go on in our society, and it has, it, it has been going on almost since the beginning of time. And we see it over and over and over again. But the thing is, God has already made provision for it. It's in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. 
says there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ. You see, the good news, the gospel, the good news is that Jesus not only destroyed the separation between us and God, but he tore down all the boundaries that man had put up between the races, between the classes, between the sexes. The Jews of Jesus' time were very, very prejudiced people. We've talked about it before. The, the Samaritans who lived just outside of Judea, they hated them. Good Jews would not even go into the home of someone who was not Jewish. They would not eat with somebody who was not Jewish. But that's not the way it is in, in Jesus' church. You see, from the very, very beginning, when the church was born, the first day when the church was born, I'm going to read this to you. I'm going to prove to you that this is not just a, a prop up here. Listen to this. It says, now there was in Jerusalem men from every nation under heaven. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. These are the people that heard the noise when the church was born. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit shows up, there was a noise. Something happened. And when Peter got up and preached the first, listen, the first Christian message, it was all about pulling everybody in. It wasn't about, hey, this is just for Jews. It was for pulling everybody in. It was for pulling the Cretes in. It was for pulling everybody in. Everybody. God, from the very beginning, when he birthed his church, he meant for it to be a multiracial church. We miss God's heart. Well, let me throw this in here. Since it is... Memorial Day, or we're getting ready to celebrate Memorial Day. The war that this country lost the most men in was the war that we fought when we were divided. Not only did we lose the most men, we lost more men in that than every other war we have ever fought combined. You see what the enemy wants to do. He wants to divide. He wants to destroy. He wants to kill. We miss God's heart when we neglect the poor. I love what we do with with Pastor John under the bridge. Not only is he he meeting some, some physical needs, he's bringing church to people who may not be invited into a church. 
He's feeding people that may have no other way to be fed. But he's also building homes for people to live in, little tiny houses for people to live in. Because the man has a vision. He said, God has called me to, to end homelessness and to end poverty. Well, that's pretty big, isn't it? And he's not just putting people in these little homes. When he brings them in, the vision is to teach them a trade. So you're ending the cycle. We can't overlook the poor. And in Jewish society, as it was really any place else on the, on the earth, in Greek society, in Roman society, women were not highly regarded. In fact, if you read some, some Greek philosophers, they believed that women were not even of the, the same species as man. They thought that, that, that women were lower than dogs. And in the Jewish culture of the time, women were not allowed into the inner part of the temple. They had to be on the outside. And women weren't allowed in the temple, and obviously they weren't allowed ministry, but in Jesus' church, women are anointed to do ministry. So the early church exploded in growth, in part because the Christians loved to cross cultures and races. I mean, Paul's entire ministry, he said, I'm not going to the Jews, I'm going to the Gentiles. The early church ministered to the poor when their their people would, would sell property and bring the money, and they would use it. For the orphans and the widows, and you got to understand, there was no such thing as an orphanage back then. You know why? Because the church thought it up first. Children at the time, if they were unwanted, were just put out. Put out into the street. Babies that were unwanted were put out into the street to die. If the child was old enough, they'd be sold into slavery. They may be used in, in some of the, the temples as prostitutes. This is the culture that the church is being born into. If you're a widow, you have no rights to anything. You don't inherit anything from, from your husband. You had rights to nothing. So you could have been destitute. So here's two large populations of people that nobody else cared for until the church came along. Until the church did something about it. And here's another reason that the church exploded. Remember those women? Women were embraced in ministry. Women like Priscilla, Phoebe, the four daughters of Philip, and many others. They were brought in. But because the church is not always focused on justice the way that we should, we see these same issues rising up in society, even today. Miss Dorothy, Miss Dorothy Sims. Miss Dorothy, not only is she a woman of God, 
Not only is is she a devil stomping prayer warrior, but I'm about to tell you something that you may not know about her. Did you know that she and her family marched with Dr. Martin Luther King? Did you know that her family, and everybody goes, yay, today, but 60 years ago, there wasn't a whole lot of yay. 60 years ago, that could have cost them jobs. That could have cost their life. But they stood up for justice. They marched for justice. They demanded civil rights. They demanded the integration of schools. They did what needed to be done, and they did it in a godly manner. Thank you, Miss Dorothy. And you may be saying, well, Pastor Chris, why are you bringing this up 60 years later? You know, everything's good now. Miss Dorothy and her family fighting for school integration just so her son can graduate from a school named after a Confederate general. Yeah, I knew that one wasn't going to get a whole lot of amens. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry for saying it. I'm sorry that it's happening. You know when Robert E. Lee High School was opened? 1958. You know what was going on in 1958? School desegregation. Do you know what the first uh, mascot of Robert E. Lee High School was? A rebel. A man dressed in Confederate gray running around with a Confederate flag. Go R-E-L. Don't tell me there's not something still to fight for nowadays. Don't tell me that there's not still places to go nowadays. I watched a documentary a a couple of weeks ago, and it was about the first little league game between a black team and a white team in the South, 1955. In 1955, the, the Little League organization came out and said, hey, we're not going to keep, uh, dese- uh, keep segregating the teams, so you're going to have to play each other. And it just so turned out that uh, in Florida, there was a black team from Pensacola that, that played in their area, and during the, the season, they didn't have to play any white teams. But when they got to the playoffs, they had to play white teams. And all these white teams refused to play them. So they became the area champions and didn't even have to try. But then they were moved up to the state championship. A team from Orlando, an all-white team and an all-black team. Now this white team could have forfeited as well, but they had made it all the way through the area and they wanted to be the state champions. So they agreed to the game, and they played the game under a lot of tension, under a lot of threats, but they played the game, and thankfully, nothing bad happened. But after the game, now these are kids, 10, 11, and 12-year-old kids. They were told they couldn't cross the field and shake hands at the end of the game. And as they were interviewing these men, they said, yeah, I remember, I remember, we didn't get to shake hands, we didn't get to shake hands, we didn't get to shake hands. 
So this documentary filmmaker, he found as many from the two teams as he could, and he brought them together. And you know what the first thing they did was? They shook hands. Because they had been, that right had been stolen from them as kids. Now as men in their 70s, the first thing they wanted to do was reach out and say, good game. And you know what else they did? They prayed together. And I'm sitting there on my couch crying like a baby going, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the good news. When Jesus gets involved and stupid people get out of the way, real life happens. The gospel is the ultimate justice against sin, division, hatred, against exclusion and neglect. And the gospel brings healing in these three areas that I've just brought up. Back in 1 Samuel, chapter 14, verse 6, it says, let's go across to the outpost of those pagans. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, let me read that again because I messed it up. Let's go across to the outpost of those pagans, Jonathan said to his armor bearer. Perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win the battle, whether by many or by few. Let's be determined to be the few, if there is only a few. Let's be determined to be the few that cross over. Let's be the, be the few that are willing to go into the enemy camp and declare truth. Let's just don't sit back and wait for somebody else to do it. Let's don't sit back and wait for society to tell us how we're supposed to do race relations. Let's don't sit back and let the world tell us how we're ha supposed to have uh, sexual equality. We've got the answer. Let's don't sit, don't sit back. Third question. Third question, how do we get justice? How do we get justice? To get justice, first of all, we have to understand what happened in Genesis chapter three. I'm taking a little diversion here, but just follow along with me. In Genesis chapter three, verses one through four, it says the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord had made. One day he asked a woman, asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing good and knowing evil. Now, most of us know, if it's the first time you've ever been in the church, I don't want to ruin this for you. Go read it. No, they ate it. The difference between what happened in Genesis chapter 3 and what was going on before is night and day. Beforehand, everything that God did, everything that God made, he said it was good. Everything was good. When he made man and he made woman, he said it was good. In fact, he said, very good. 
When he made man and he made woman, he didn't make a man to be over the woman. They, they, were, they were co-laborers. They were together. They were there to co-reign together. But because of the fall, things changed. Anytime somebody asks me, why is there so much hell in this world? Genesis chapter 3. Why is there war? Genesis chapter 3. Why is there hatred? Genesis chapter 3. Everything goes back to Genesis chapter 3 because God had given man and woman authority in the earth. He said, hey, I created it, but you have dominion over it. You take it, you have authority. He had given it to them. But then they turned and gave it to Satan. So when we sit around and go, why didn't God just do something? Well, guess what? It's not fully God's yet. I don't want to shock anybody. But the New Testament says Satan is the God of this world, little g, God of this world. Well, why couldn't God just do? Because God is a just God. And if we want the justice of God, we have to do things justly. If you don't think Satan has, has authority in this world, think about Jesus' temptation. Luke chapter 4. Satan took Jesus up and he said, he showed him the nations of the world. He said, I'll give them to you if you'll worship me. Well, he's not giving anything that doesn't belong to him. And it was a temptation. If it wasn't a temptation, it wouldn't have said it was a temptation. He was offering Jesus an easy way to get everything that he wanted. Everything that he came for was people. And Satan goes, hey, I'll show you a shortcut. I'll show you a shortcut. Thankfully, he didn't go for it. But God has to be invited into our situation. Because authority was given over to the enemy, we now have to invite God back into our situation. God started that with Abraham. God gave Abraham a son that he said, give him to me. And because Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, now we know he didn't have to go through with it, because he was willing to do that, God was willing to give his son. He was able to give his son. He was being invited back into the story of man. And still today... God needs to be invited back into our situation, back into our story. If you don't believe that, why is everybody not saved? Everybody's already forgiven. Jesus has already done the work to forgive them, but they're not all saved. Why? Because he has to be invited in. In Revelation 3, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. Open the door and I'll come in. So how do we open the door? James 4.2 tells us, 
Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. When we ask God for things, what are we doing? A very religious term. Praying. Prayer is our weapon. Prayer is our weapon of warfare. Prayer is our invitation to God back into our situation. Prayer is the door through which God can work. When we pray about injustices, God can work. Prayer stirs our faith, and it, and it produces good works in us. And I'm not being ugly, but should we be surprised at the amount of injustice in our world when compared to the amount of prayer we've been doing? I'll finish with this. 1 Samuel 14, 13. So they climbed up using both hands and feet. Prayers work sometimes, isn't it? We don't always want to do it, do we? Sometimes it's work. Sometimes it feels like you're climbing. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed those who came behind him. When we're willing to fight in prayer, the oppression of the enemy will be destroyed in front of us and behind us. Prayer is our weapon. Prayer is the beginning. Prayer stirs our faith. Prayer is what pushes us out. Pastor Sam and I were talking to a gentleman a couple of weeks ago who, who uh, is really passionate about prayer. He said, have you, have you noticed that there's never been a revival that was not preceded by prayer? What do I want you to know? We have injustice in this world because we have an oppressive, lying thief for an enemy. He stole authority, but Jesus bought it back. However, we must be warriors for justice and invite the justice of God into our situations through our prayers and through our actions. I'm going to throw a new one in here. What do I want you to feel? I want you to feel indignation towards injustice. Don't be dull. Don't walk by the needs of people. Don't be that person that James was talking about saying, oh, hey, I see you have a need. I'm going to pray that you be warmed and filled. Do something about it. I want you to feel compassion for the oppressed. And I want you to feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit to be an agent of change. What do I want you to do? Let's be determined to be people of prayer. Let's pray. Even if you don't feel like you know how to pray, even if you feel like I don't know what to pray about, there's this wonderful, wonderful time that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. And part of it was pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.